me in your Bible to Leviticus chapter seven, uh, 18. So we can, there's a lot of material here in the two chapters, but just to set you at ease, we are not going verse by verse <laughs> per se. We're going chapter by chapter more so today. And I am, but I am going to ask you to stand and we'll read the first five verses of chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And this will be our focus today. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall keep my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. God bless his word. You may be seated. So I have a question for you this morning. Are morals important? You can answer that question in your own mind. You know, how are we to behave with one another? You know, you, you know I don't believe that necessarily that morals are a, a social phenomenon. I think we are social creatures. And I think society, for the most part, does have a heavy influence on who we become and what kind of people we are. You know, but how are we to live with each other in our culture, in our society? How are we to behave in society? What are the rules? Who sets them? Does every man just continue to do, you know, what's right in his own eyes, or are there some absolutes? And how do we learn them if they are rules? And why do we need them? And why should we be moral? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? Because, hey, after all, tomorrow we're going to die. You know, just think about it for a moment. If there were no traffic laws, would you be able to travel safely in your automobile? <laughs> I seem to talk about that a little bit, don't I? <laughs> Traffic. I've been in a few third world countries and a few second world countries. And they are a good example of the chaos that can follow when traffic rules are lax. You know, the answer of being moral should be obvious to rational thinking people. They're without the basic rules, and no matter how much they are broken, there would be chaos without them. The fact that people break the rules makes it should be clear and obvious that that just there's not a, that's not a good reason to eliminate them. We need them. You know, we need the traffic laws so that we can have safe transportation. You know, we don't really want people dying unnecessarily because of the selfish acts of, of some who drive on the, our streets. But why are more rules needed? Why do human beings need rules and keep 
promises and why are these things important? You know, why is it important to tell the truth? Why is it important to respect private property? You know, obviously the answer should be obvious uh, to us. Why? You know, we couldn't live. We would not be able to function safely without rules and laws to govern us. You know, can you imagine if... What would happen to your property if this were the case and you left your property and your material possessions behind to go someplace? You may not have them when you return. I mean, there's enough of that going on with the laws and rules, right? You have to leave someone back there to safeguard your property or, you know, it would be gone on your return, you know. Should we really care about being moral? I think we should, obviously. And I think there's several reasons for that. Life in our culture, in this world, would would be almost impossible. It would be nearly impossible to live in peace. Psychologically, uh, we naturally think about this. I mean, we have a, a built-in law within. It's called our conscience. We also care about what other people think about us. Like, you know, if I do this, what are other people... And that's a deterrent you know, to doing what's right, because the law is written within us in our conscience. You know, people do care about their reputation, at least in the sphere of where they live. You know, what 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 does my neighbors think of me? What do my friends think of me? But the bigger thing is there's an underlying thing built within everyone that there's an eternal accountability on how we live. There's something inside us that tells us that we will answer to a higher power when we leave this world. And so the afterlife does involve punishment. It also involves reward for obedience. And so God has placed the law here in Leviticus, in the book of worship for the nation of Israel to understand how to behave in their society, in their culture. As we read there, they were not like the Egyptians, and they were not going to be like the Canaanites, those who dwelled in the land. In fact, God was removing the Canaanites because of their idolatry, because of their practices, because of their every man doing what was right in their own eyes and their worship of these idols and the destruction that they were bringing upon their lives. They were destroying themselves because they... We're not following the law within. And so God is right from the start. They're at the base of the mountain. They're learning who Yahweh is. They're learning what is expected of them with one another. And so this is what we have in chapter 18 and 19 this morning. The moral laws as were presented to the nation by Moses. You shall not do. You shall not walk. You're not like everybody else. And so this should be enough for you and I to, to in our own lives. Look, you're a Christian. You've been born again. You're not like the world. You don't have to live like that. You can say no. You can stand tall in the convictions of the truth that are in God's word. We don't have to succumb to political correctness and some of the crazy things that are going on in our culture. 
In fact, I just simply refuse to. And I, and I make no apologies for some of this. I mean, who are they to impose upon us their convictions since they have no desire to obey the law within? Of course, as we read through these chapters, we realize that much of what was written here was to protect God's people. You see, if we live like the world, we're going to suffer the same consequences of that sin. The people in Canaan were destroying themselves. They were giving their children to the fires of Molech. Abortion is a way we would look at it today. We're destroying our culture through disobeying our conscience. And it's time that we as Christians say stuff and stand up for what is right. God was trying to protect his people from themselves and from the fallen world around them. And this is what the rules are for. This is what the laws are for. They're not for our, uh, to encumber us or to imprison us. Rather, it is for our freedom. You know, because we have traffic laws and because we obey them, we can travel at, at you know, pretty high speeds very safely within the confines of what is legislated. And, and this is a good thing. And so uh, God wants us to be free, to be able to move about. And so what God was communicating to the Israelites was good, and it was for their good. And there were two basic concepts within the law that uh, God was communicating. He has this loyal love, this covenant of loyal love, this hesed, I love you. I've chosen you as my people. I have this loyal love towards you. I'm keeping my promise to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm bringing you, I've brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm bringing you into promise, to the promised land because I promised them that I would do so. And I have this loyal love towards you. And I am simply asking you as the people, my people, to extend that same hesed, that same loyal love to me. And here are the things that you should do and must do if you are to live and to walk in them. You must recognize the concepts that are within my law. The two concepts was the covenant of of separateness. Israel was not like Egypt, not like Canaan, not like the rest of the worldly cultures. They were to be a separated people. And within that covenant was also a principle of, of the realm of distinction, being able to distinct and understand, discern the things that God would accept and not accept. And so the covenant of separateness, two basic concepts, that of covenant separateness and realm distinction. So covenant separateness is the, the distinction, as we've mentioned here, between Yahweh's people and the people of the other nations. What they were doing in the other nations was not acceptable to God. They could not enter into a personal relationship with God because they were serving idols. They were following the false gods. Remember, that was the big thing that was going on in Egypt. It was Yahweh against the gods of the Egyptians. And guess who won that battle? <laughs> God put down every one of them in substantial fashion. These nations were living in ignorance of their in of their in the ignorance of their idolatry. They were worshiping the creation in one form or another. 
You cannot have communion with God if you have idols, the worship of idols in your life. And so he's just simply asking for this pure, loyal love to be returned to him. And so in this separateness, there was to be uh, this realm of distinction. And so as you go through the law, you see this whole idea of, of clean and unclean, defiled and undefiled, holy and unholy. In this physical part, the law said, do not touch this. Do not eat this. Those kinds of things. And God was driving those points home because a lot of those things that were considered unclean and defiling were things that would be harmful to the human body. It would be harmful if it was allowed to exist within their culture. So God wanted to to deprive them of the pain that would come in associating with those things. And just as... For example, the uh, offerings that were to be made to God, you couldn't offer uh, to God a crippled or maimed sacrifice. They had to be a holy, uh, a spotless, a, a, a sacrifice without any blemishes. These God was, again, making it the distinction that they needed to understand. There are certain things that are holy. There are certain things that are not. And, of course, the people soon realized that if they crossed the line and they did certain things, they would suffer the consequences for that disobedience. You're not allowed to go into the presence of God, for example, without pre uh, doing all the preliminary things. One of, and chiefly, that is having your sins covered by the blood sacrifices that were provided there. And so you, you didn't take long to figure that you didn't play around with things that God considered holy. You had to respect them. It goes on, as we'll see here, generally the idea uh, was played out in the area of mixing things. You didn't mix seeds together. You didn't uh, uh, mix different types of clothing together. You didn't uh, interbreed your animals. You were, had to be careful with crossbreeding and all. You know, what God had created separate and distinct was to remain that way. They did not have the, the right or the, what they might consider their right or privilege to, to mix things. What God had separated from the beginning, he wanted to remain separate for good reasons. And we don't always understand why God commanded the, these things, but uh, he did. And so we, it wasn't ours to ask why, it was ours to, to do, <laughs> to just simply obey. And so that was true This in the... Uh, area of the physical realm, but also in this realm distinction that was to be recognized, there was also this spiritual aspect to it, that they were not to interact with these beings from the other dimension, the spirit realm. And only uh, those that were ordered or commanded by God to enter into such areas, such as Moses. Moses was commanded to go up the mountain, and there he would meet with Yahweh. Nobody else was given that privilege. None of the other leaders could just go there. But Moses was bidden by God to come, and he obeyed. He went. He was not destroyed because he was told to do this. And, uh, and so we see this in the law, that there's, you, only, you only could enter into that dimension of communication with God or his presence upon uh, him, his invitation. But there were those who uh, would try to uh, 
uh, make contact with the other dimension uh, and these beings that dwell there. You know, human beings, we were made a little lower than the angels. We don't have the same authority. We don't have the same power or the same understanding uh, that they do. And I can tell you, by because of what the Bible says, that these beings that dwell in that unseen realm of darkness do not have our best interest in mind. You know, so we're commanded to refrain from that contact in that realm. But you know how we are. We're a curious people. We want to know. We want to discover. And I think God put that in us so that we would look at Him and seek after Him and look at His creation, the beautiful things that He called good, and try to understand what God had actually put together. But but with those influences that are in that from that dark realm, there's that curiosity, that wanting to know, wanting to dabble in that unseen realm, uh, and not really knowing that these uh, beings are malevolent. They have really, uh, do not have our best interests in mind. And it's dangerous to be dealing with that. So God wanted his people to make, uh, have discernment that they were themselves were a separated people and they were to make distinctions in the physical realm and in the f- spiritual realm as to what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. And so this is primarily what we have here in these two chapters. Uh, We're going to read here, and I'll just kind of go through a number of them just to cover them, just to remind us of the things that God feels are important, where we need to exercise this uh, discernment. One of them, and which is affecting our lives today, uh, is biblical marriage. It's defined as being one man being married to one woman. Uh, this is how it was in the beginning, Jesus said, um, and God hasn't changed his mind, just so you know, and I don't care what the world says. You got an argument with that, it's don't, you don't have it with me. You can take it up with him. That's what he said, and I'm sticking with what he said, and you can you know, do the same if you're wise. Uh, <laughs> The first part of what we're going to read here is God knows our condition. He knows we live in, we're fallen. He knows that we have evil influences. He's not, you know, he's not blind to what we're subjected to. And he understands that um, we're going to be tempted in some of these areas that he, to, to go to the unclean, to, to do things that are unholy. And so he lays it out here. And so verses 6 through uh, 18 uh, cover sexual purity. And we're not to have basically no relations with our relatives. You'll see, at least in my translation, New King James here, uh, you shall not uncover nakedness. And that's a a euphemism for uh, sexual relationships with a person. You know, for those who might not know, that's what that means. It's taken from the Hebrew word galah, uh, which means reveal or uncover, uh, which is a verb to to uncover. And then uh, erwa, which means nakedness. So it's this, this idiom for sexual intercourse. And so God lays out right from the beginning how uh, the Israelites were to relate to one another and to keep things pure. 
uh, there, you know, because there was the command. What was the command? As soon as Noah, you know, repopulated the earth, you know, be fruitful and multiply. So we have this command to God that, you know, yes, you're going to have these personal relationships on this level, but they're to remain pure, and especially for God's people. And, you know, it carries on into the New Testament where, you know, we know this. Um, no, that, that's basically what it is. You don't un- uncover any of your near kin. No, 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 those kinds of relationships. The only one that would have been allowed is if a sister or a brother would die. Let's say it was actually a brother, the liver, liverite law. If your brother would die uh, according to the law, then his brother was to take his wife, the widowed wife of his brother, and have relations with her to have children to so that his name would not be lost. That would be the only reason. But in that case, uh, the brother had died. So there wasn't this uh, to be this confusion otherwise. So that's basically what's there. And you can read that for yourself. Verses 19 through 23 uh, give us other forbidden sexual activity. Uh, no abstinence during uh, customary impurity. Uh, no relations with your uh, Neighbor's wife, there in verse 19. And and then another one that's, as I sort of jumped into that a little bit earlier here, was don't give your children to the fires of Molech. This is what was going on primarily in Canaan. And this was disgusting, and um, this was an abomination to God. And God gave the people from the time of Abraham all the way up until this time, 400 years God was patient with the inhabitants of Canaan to clean up this idolatry, but it, they refused to repent. And this is something we learn from the scriptures. Our God is very merciful. He's very gracious, and he's very patient. But there comes a time, we know not when, when that grace line is drawn in the sand, and when that period is up and a person has failed or a nation has failed to repent they will suffer the consequences of their disobedience and they will suffer the consequences of their idolatry and such was the case Israel was to become God's instrument by which he judged the Canaanites now some people think this is really an unloving move by God but if you study what went on there it was not wholesale slaughter. They just didn't. They did not go through the promised land and, and completely wipe out everybody. There were certain people groups. And most of them were tied in actually with the bloodlines that were corrupted through the interaction between uh, the unseen realm and the daughters of men. We can see this. There were seven bloodlines that were to have kaharim devoted to destruction and they were to kill all the men all the women all the children all the livestock because something had been corrupted in their dna and god said i'm done with it they've had time to repent from these activities and interacting this way and they're doomed and israel happened to be the instrument god used to judge them but not everybody within that that area was wiped out. And you can follow through on that if you want to. Study that. Look that over. 
very important concept to, to grasp, actually, as you're reading through the Old Testament. But this idea of giving their children to Molech, and um, this was a deity of the, of the Canaanite people, and it was it was in, involved child sacrifice. Could have involved, depending on who you read and and how depth deep you want to go with this, but uh, temple prostitution and all that. To me, it's it's sort of symbolic, to, at least to some degree. It was the god of pleasure. They worship the god of pleasure, much like we worship the god of pleasure today. We don't call it Molech, and we don't recognize it as that kind of thing. But it's hedonism. It's it's living for pleasure. I'm I, I was familiar with that as an unsaved individual at one time, and I think it's what rules our culture today. I do what feels good. What and I, I feel that this is right. You know, it's all based on emotion and feeling what and whatever's right to me. You know, regardless of what how it might affect my neighbor or other people, it's it's what I want to do. That's hedonistic. You know, generally speaking, you know, uh, I think this is a modern day comparison to abortion. Why do I say that? At least to some degree. You know, why do people have abortions? Why do they have this? Go on. Why are we allowed to murder children in the womb? Well, first of all, for the people that uh, uh, are involved in making this decision, they have a lifestyle. They're doing things that, that they enjoy doing, and, and, and this sexual activity has led to an unwanted pregnancy. And so if I follow through with having this child... Now I've got to care for this child. I've got to raise this child. That requires sacrifice on my part. I'm going to have to give my time, my money, and my life so that this child can be cared for. And I don't want to do that. So I'll offer this child, I'll murder this child legally by the law so that I can continue in this self-indulgent, hedonistic lifestyle that I want for myself. So I think it's obviously it's a very sad thing. This is not something I enjoy talking about, but it's present. It's something that we need to continue to pray for, that there's repentance in our nation. We are a bloody nation. Millions of babies are being murdered every year. And I'm not I'm speaking to the choir here. I know everybody's aware of this, but we need to continue to pray along these lines that it stops. It's just so wrong at every level. And I don't care what your argument is. It's not a good one. To murder children, there's no good reason. No excuse. Well, it's my body. No, it's not. No, it is not. A child is not your, part of your body at all in that regard. Now, I can speak to this. It's very personal to me. And I'm not condemning anyone that's had an abortion. I would never do that. I have no right to judge anyone. I'm not God. I don't know all the facts. Only he does. But this is a very painful thing in my own life because I murdered my firstborn child. God used this to bring about my salvation. 
I was living a hedonistic life. My girlfriend was pregnant, and I went through that whole process at the age of 18 years old. It's a self-centered choice that we made along with her parents that I regret to this day. It's blood guilt. That is a heavy load for any soul to bear. But by personal testimony, I can say that God heals. People will say, oh, these children, they, they all go to heaven. How can that possibly be an excuse for such a heinous crime? This is going on in our culture, and I'm sorry to say that I believe it's going on in the church of Jesus Christ. People who name the name of Christ. Well, we, do, we, we wouldn't want people to know that you know our, our son or our daughter has been promiscuous, and now you know we're going to have a child out of wedlock. Well, two wrongs don't make a right. And that's wouldn't be the first person that that, ha- that has happened to. We must look to God. And none of us have a right to judge others in this area. You know, God has made us man and woman. And there's a chemical thing that goes on. We are wired to be attracted to one another. Sexual sins happen. And let us not look down our self-righteous noses at those who fall into that trap and make those mistakes. If I save for the grace of God, we'd all be living savage lives. But because we're saved and we have the Holy Spirit and we've been drawn out of that and we've learned how to keep ourselves pure, we have power over those things and we don't do those things. But let's not judge those who haven't received that grace to overcome. We need to be a a church, a family of people who accept those who have sinned, those who have really blown it. And I was one of those, so it's really easy for me to let people off the hook. I know how merciful God can be and how gracious He can be. You know, God was so good to me, He gave me five more kids. And I'm grateful for them. So, God goes on to to just line out for the nation. You need to have healthy relationships in the camp of God, in the family of God. You don't touch any of your relatives. You don't touch your neighbor's wife. There's to be no homosexuality. You know, this is another thing. It it has now become common to... to the church, to accept Christi- uh, homosexuality within Christianity as if it's the norm. It's okay. It's not okay. And it's not because I say so. Because God says this is an abomination to him. A man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman. It's a perversion. When I was a young man growing up in the 60s, a little, a little kid at that time, It was considered a form of insanity to be a homosexual. That's why they were, quote, in the closet. And now we've rolled the clock for, you know, 50 years or so. 
And it's, the, it's okay. It's an accepted norm. People can be. And I know this is not a popular thing to say, and I'm not trying to be antagonistic here. I'm just not going to back off because the culture is telling me that it's changed. God hasn't changed his mind. Because homosexual relationships are just a gateway to other perversions. Why does he go on to mention in verse 23, no bestiality. Yet these are the things that are being fostered upon our culture right now. And we as Christians need to stand up, regardless of what the persecution might be. If we don't do it, it will affect us. This would have brought the whole nation of Israel down had they not employed what God had laid out here in the law. We are to obey God's laws and to refuse to obey them. It, we will not escape what is sown in the flesh. We will reap, as it were, corruption from these things. We're looking at sex with underage children, pedophilia, and all those things are happening. In fact, there's a number of... Th- Hundreds of people have been arrested on a national level for pedophilia. You know, thank the Lord we've, we're, we're, we're seeing it stem to some degree. This, isn't, of course, isn't going to be, you know, announced by the media. They're ignoring it. The Jeffrey Epsteins of the world have, are being exposed. The Harvey Weinstein, or Weinstein, however you want to pronounce his name. They're being exposed. The child trafficking that goes on in Hollywood. And that's why I just encourage you, just be careful what you watch on the, on the television. Be careful what you see. Be careful what you hear. Just be careful. Don't give them your money. Just because they can stand you know, and act on a silver screen doesn't mean they're smart. It means they have the ability to act and play a role. But they are smarter. They're, they're not more important in their opinion than anybody else. You know whose opinion really matters? God's opinion. He's the one that we'll answer to. He's the one that we're going to stand before for our morals. It won't be Hollywood that judges, nor will it be the politicians that judges. It will be God Almighty that we stand before. And so I'm not intimidated by them whatsoever. I realize that I could, you know, suffer persecution for my stance, but, you know, it's not me. It's, It's what God has said. There's to be no homosexuality. There's to be no bestiality. These are perversions. They are wrong. They are destructive. Let me ask you this. And you don't have to, I don't want you to answer it, only in your own mind. We, being a parent of children, would you feel comfortable leaving your child in a room by themselves with someone that you knew was a homosexual. And that should size it up within your own mind. I don't care how nice they might be. That, that's not the issue. God says it's wrong. And I think we have to, you know, I, this is probably a, a jerk back for some of you who maybe are letting the liberal mindset sort of affect you. You listen to, to the media and you listen to some of that brainwashing that goes on. And you begin to accept a lot of things that you normally would not accept. 
I remember, I re- you know, I'm old enough to remember some of the things that were totally rejected as I was a young man growing up in this world. And it, believe me, it's changed. The moral climate within the uh, United States is much, much different than it was 40 years ago. And so I'm just reminding us that, it's, as Peter tells us in the scriptures, this You live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It is not getting better. And we need some, in the church, in one sense, I'm not preaching legalism here. We need to step it up. God says, be holy, set apart for me. Turn with me to 1 Peter. You're saved. You've been redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb. You and I personally we have responsibility before God to live a certain way. Now, most of us have found out that trying to live the Christian life in your own strength is an impossibility. You'll flounder, you'll fail, you'll even fail miserably trying to do it in your own strength. But we've been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. And with that, we have received His Spirit. We have the power to overcome, and to be different. And with understanding our salvation, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter lines out the responsibilities that we have to be holy. It's up to us to keep ourselves from being defiled. You can't read through this book and not be affected or not see how Peter's mind is so Jewish. He is, he's in Leviticus. He understands sacrifice, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, you know, throwing the blood against the altar, making atonement for sin. Be holy, for I am the Lord your God. I am holy. I mean, that's, that's 19 here, where we're at. He knows it. He's lived in it as a Jewish person. And so he's bringing it to the scattered Jews throughout the Roman Empire and to the church. This was a circulatory letter that was read by all the church. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the salvation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Because as it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who judges without partiality and judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, and without spot. This is so important for us to understand. Gird up your minds. Dress yourself. That's essentially what it means. The gird. Prepare to think. Think hard. To be sober-minded here means to be self-controlled. Be discreet. Be sensible. Keep a clear head about yourself. I mean, this culture that we live has their their convictions firmly planted in midair. 
That's what Francis Schaeffer referred to. Modern man, through his humanistic thought, has no basis or absolutes within his life. Therefore, he's controlled by his emotions. And that's just why we have what we have in our culture. They have no basis of absolutes. They're drifting through life as they were drifting aimlessly on the sea and it's going to end up in shipwreck. All cultures do. Thirdly, there, rest your hope on the grace. What is hope? Hope is a state of anticipation as you wait. You know that God is there. You know that God has promised something, and so you wait in anticipation for him to come. But the Hebrew word, and it's carried on into the Greek as well in some ways, then the state of anticipation is that you're not there thinking about your circumstances to change. The anticipation is for a person. This is used throughout Psalms by David. I wait on you, Yahweh. And so, hope for the grace. God always gives what we need while we're waiting. So important for us to just trust God. He is coming. The hope of glory. We are waiting in anticipation for Jesus Christ to return and to restore all things. To take that which is wrong and make it right. He's going to do it. It's going to happen when we wait with tremendous hope. And I like the way it's the Hebrew language is. We covered this yesterday. I, I feel like I should share it with you. It's such a wonderful thought. The Hebrew language is a word picture language. And the word for hope in Hebrew is oh, a couple different ones. There's yak, yaha, yakal, and then uh, kav, kava. And they're, they're, yahal is, is, is kind of like uh, Noah uh, yahaled for the flood waters to recede. He waited and waited <laughs> for the waters the flood waters to recede. And then kava is used to describe as a word like the tension on a rope. When you pull on a rope and it creates tension, that's called kava. And so there's a tension in our lives as we're waiting for God to come and deliver us, to help us, to do, to do whatever we're anticipating needs to be done. And there's that tension there. David used that a lot, as I mentioned there. There's a tension in your life, in my life, waiting for God to do something that we've been praying for, praying about for a long time. It's not a bad tension. And that tension actually has a way of centering us on God. So we don't go to the left too far or to the right too far. Jesus is coming soon. You and I have enough grace to make it through. Hope. We rest our hope. We fully commit it. that God is going to give us the grace until we see it come to pass. We are to be obedient to the Lord. We simply do, and I'm finishing up with these things, we are simply to do what God has called us to do. What has God put on your heart? Do it. Go for it. 
We're to keep ourselves, and this is essentially what Peter's saying, keep yourself in a position. You don't, we don't make ourselves holy. That's the presence of Christ in us. We're to keep ourselves in a position where God can bless us. Stay away from the things that defile. Stay away from the unholy. Don't mess with things that are unclean. Don't look at things you shouldn't see. Don't hear things you shouldn't hear. Do the best. You're going to have trouble regardless by trying hard not to do that. You're going to have enough trouble. But don't do it. Don't self-inflict. You know, don't, you know, put this upon yourself. Jude put it this way in verse 20. Beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so just ask God to give you an obedient heart. And he will. The next thing would be, according to this, is don't, as he says here, don't conform to your former life. What happens when you get disappointed? What happens when you go through a tragic situation? You, you lose hope. And so often when this, we go through these things that are, that are downers, we ourselves begin to go in a downward spiral away because we're emotionally damaged and we're hurting from it. We turn back to our old ways. When we're going through it, and he's writing here, he's writing to a group of people that are about to face the lion's den. These guys are going to get thrown to the lions. They're facing persecution. And he doesn't want them to just focus on that. He wants them to focus on Christ, on their relationship with the Lord. And this is important for us. When we're going through it, conform their means to assimilate. You know, to, to go back into what you're used to doing. Don't do that. That's what he's saying. Avoid that. Don't go back and follow the old cravings of the flesh. Trust God. We're called to holiness. And again, think Leviticus. And then conduct yourself in respect. There's three areas, and I'm going to close with this. These are three areas that I think are so critical about this. Learning to show respect. Now if someone, and I've really sort of hammered the the deviant sexual things here today. I realize that. But I am not disrespecting people that are caught up in that. I care about them. They can be healed. They can repent. They can turn to God. God can heal. And I would invite anyone that struggles with that by listening through the internet, I'd be glad to help you and pray with you. But here's the thing. We're to fear God. Three three areas of respect that really need to be present in our lives day, daily. Fear the Lord. That's where it starts. Respect other people. Regardless of how sinful they might be, every one of us has been created in the image of God. And, he, and everyone is precious to God. Everyone is important to God. There are no unimportant people on this planet. No matter how sinful they might be or how, many, how heinous the crimes they may have committed, if they are breathing, they can repent. They can turn to God. If anybody can be saved, like me, anybody can be saved. If I'm just, you know, I, I know I kind of sort of understand what Paul meant. I was the chief of sinners, you know. If God had mercy on me, he could have mercy on anyone. And I'm not trying to exaggerate here. I understand the depth of depravity. I understand 
sin and how destructive and how it grabs a hold of people's lives and you can't get free from it. The only one that can set us free is the Lord Jesus Christ. So fear the Lord, respect other people. And lastly, respect yourself. Respect yourself enough to, to do what's right and to not you know, self-impose more pain in your life by doing what's wrong, by disobeying God. Stop doing those things that are destructive. You know, and that's easy for me to say, but that's what I had to do. You know, you, you know, you sort of like, things are not going well for my life, you know. And so you sort of start taking inventory. You know, maybe I need to straighten up, you know. Maybe I need to own, you know, the, what I've been doing is not right and, and stop being so selfish and imposing my will on other people to satisfy my own selfish desires. You know, you kind of have to go through that. The rest of 19, which we really didn't get there, well, I'm not going to go too far, but, he, you know, he picks it up there in 19. Respect your parents. That's a good place to start. That's where it started with me, rebellion. Just rebellion. It's not following the authority of my parents. Verse 4 and 19 says, No idolatry. You want to have fellowship with the Lord? Verses 5 through 8, that's on you. And that's, one, and that's a good place to really focus here. 19 verses 5 through 8, talk about the free will offering. It's on you. You want to offer a free will? What is that talking about? It's talking about fellowship with God. For the Israelite, it was bring your offering, come to the temple, slay the animal, atone for your sins, and have a meal with Yahweh in his house. And you could do it as often as you desired. And how does that play out in the Christian's life? You can have fellowship with Jesus anytime you want. All you got to do is open the Bible. All you got to do is pray. Open your heart to God and he's right there because the blood has been applied to your heart, to your life. And it's on you. God is there. God is waiting for you. God is waiting for me. He goes on to here, and of course there's about 35 things in chapter 19 that really sort of spelled out how love is played out. You don't glean everything from your fields because there's poor people that need to eat. You, you leave some for the poor. The rules and relationships and business activities. You don't steal. You don't deal falsely. You don't lie. You don't you know, take the Lord's name in vain. You don't cheat your neighbor and rob him. You know, just basic things that we sort of take for granted, right? No injustice. You judge right in all that you do. You don't slander your neighbor. You don't do something that's going to endanger your neighbor's life. If you get mad at your neighbor, then rebuke him if he's wrong. You, know, you deal with then. You know, if your brother offends you, go to your brother. I mean, it's just so pretty much laid out there. Verse 18 says, love your neighbors, you love yourself. Well, how do you want people to treat you? You want people to rip you off? No, then don't rip them off, you know. It is pretty simple stuff, isn't it? I mean, this isn't hard. God makes it pretty understandable for us. And, of course, you know, he's made provision. But I like the way he ends it here. At the end of the chapter, I am the Lord. Think of the power. I am the Lord. Live by these things that I've given to you here. You live by these things, you will experience life. To do otherwise is to bring judgment upon yourself. You know, I'm kind of a guy that, you know, I like to learn from other people's mistakes. 
fortunately, I do learn from my own, but I'd rather watch, oh, hey, that doesn't work. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I kind of like that approach. It worked well because I was the youngest of five kids. And so I saw the, my older siblings do some things like, okay, I'm not doing that, you know. So you, you kind of see here. We know how it went for the... You know, this is why Paul refers to the Old Testament. These things were written for our example. You know, we're not the exception. Oh, well, we can live any way we want. It won't affect us. No, no, no. They're all made out of the same stuff. May God help us make the right choices. Do the right thing. May we truly live separated lives unto him to experience life. Shall we pray? Stand with me as we prepare to close here. Mm, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's, boy, it's sharp, Lord. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And it, it cuts us to the, to the very heart and soul of who we are. But we know everything is open and naked before you. We can't hide. And Lord, we don't want to hide. We want to be sincere. We want to be true. And Lord, we want to be pure. We want to be set apart. We want to experience life. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for removing the guilt from our lives through our failures. Through sometimes the willful disobedience that we express. And Lord, lead us always to repentance. Lead us to the truth. We don't want to be deceived. We want to be a compassionate, loving people who stand with you on what's true and absolute. So open our eyes, open our ears to really grasp the depth of your love and your goodness that we might extend it to those in your family and to those outside. Bless your people. May you fill us with all grace. May you have mercy, Lord. And may we truly walk in the fear of the Lord this week and in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.